Thanks for being here on this humid day. Uh, at least it's not hot. It's just humid. Um, if you're new or if you're visiting, uh, my name is Norman. I am one of the assistant pastors here at King's Cross. I'm grateful to be here with all of you. Um, we're continuing and we're getting close to the end. Just one chapter left. And we're looking at 1 John in this series that we've called Love Dwelt Among Us. Um, this is John, for those who were not here, uh, just context. This is John writing near the end of his time with this beloved congregation. Uh, he's in his old age. He wrote these a little later. Uh, you would notice that he repeats himself quite a bit. He's gotten to these major themes. And he knows this congregation. Uh, this is a community that he loves, that's going through a difficult time. Uh, we learned in chapter 2 that the, the church here is divided. There were factions within this church that ha had become taken in by certain teachings that, that have displaced embodied love as a central mark of those who belong to Jesus. So John, in this letter, if you want to call it, in this work, He's calling the community back to love. Our passage today comes after a really long meditation on love. We, we jump to verse 18 for today, as you can see in your bulletin. Um, and it's in this chapter, chapter 4, that we get this oft-quoted phrase, um, God is love. I'm sure you've heard it before. Um, but in these final verses of the chapter, John is summarizing He's summarizing love and putting love at odds with, of all things, fear. And we're going to look at that in depth today. Uh, so would you pray with me as we ask the Spirit to open our hearts and teach us through the Scriptures? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, teach us and guide us. We confess that we live in fear. Help us to live knowing your love, not just with our minds, but with our bodies, our souls, our whole selves. May your love give us a deep knowing of ourselves and of you, that you love us. You love us. Lord, you love us. Teach us this morning to love as you love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen as I read from 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of the Lord. Um, our series, as I said earlier, is called Love Dwelt Among Us. And we've been saying every week in this series since the beginning, that we are called to love. <clears throat> As Gustavo 
he was guest preaching last week, he shared that all of Jesus' followers are called to love, are called to a love that is grounded in the love that Jesus demonstrates for us. Love calls us to action, to see those around us in need, to see those who are around us who are hurting, who are not in power or control. From last week's message, um, from last week's passage, it says if God's love is in us, we're called to open our heart, to make ourselves vulnerable, to be like Christ. And we're all in that process, um, becoming more like Jesus. And I hope this message builds upon what we heard in the previous weeks to push us in Christ-like direction. Um, Now, last time I was with you, uh, that was two weeks ago, uh, I confess that I slipped in a seven-point sermon. Sorry. Not sorry? Uh, I'm grateful that some of that has already borne some fruit. Um, And I pray that that would continue uh, for some time. Um, Today, I'm going to try to do it in in two, two, not two, major points. Um, And they pivot, these two parts, pivot, pivot, on... Uh, verse 19. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So the first part is that first love. We're going to first look at fear and God's love. Fear and God's love. And then we will go to the second part, which is fear and our love. So fear and God's love. We love because he first loved us. Then fear and our love. Um, So fear and God's love. Um, John says, and we'll go back to verse 18. He writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, John is having us consider God's love, which he calls perfect love, and we'll get to that in full in a a bit. John is having us consider God's love by looking at fear. Because fear is primal. It goes down to the instinct part of who we are, the, the deepest parts of who we are. Many of our most basic instincts, how we react to things, they're driven by fear. Fear keeps us safe. And fear, well, how we deal with fear, it bubbles up into how we see ourselves um, before others, but also how we see ourselves before God. We are fearful of punishment, as this passage is pointing us, punishment as rejection, as abandonment. We are fearful of the consequences of being less than some ideal. And this fear leads us to hide, right? Uh, Let me share, just, I'll try to make this two ways that we can hide. Um, And some of us try to hide um, by being inconspicuous. We we try to blend with the wallpaper. Uh, We stand on the sidelines watching others. We're spectators, we make ourselves so. Um, We don't offer our opinions. We don't offer ourselves. We watch everyone um, so we can figure out what's acceptable, so we could fit in, right? 
Because if we don't stick out, then no one will notice anything that they could possibly reject in us. We could slowly figure out what's safe, but only remain partially known. No one really knows who we are because we're not sure if we want all of us to be visible. So we hide. We try to be hidden. We blend in. Um, that's one way. The other way um, is that we can hide by putting forward this aura of confidence, of strength. We project strength and decisiveness. Um, we become assertive and firm. If, we're, if, uh, if you watch kung fu movies, like a strong defense is a strong off, like, you know, like that kind of thing. We were like, we're, we're putting forward this aura that we know what we're doing. Sometimes it could even come off as abrasive, and we might even explain it away like, that's just who I am. You've heard that before, I'm sure, or you've said it before. This is also a way that we can put up walls to protect ourselves from hurt. And it looks strong, right? We, we like people who are confident, I think. Yet, behind every strong aura of confidence, the reason why walls get so high or so thick is because the real us is tender. Our souls need to be protected. And we know that the pain would be too great if anything ever got through these barriers that we build around ourselves, around our tender souls, and then we keep those walls up. And then our real, our real selves also as the hiding in the wallpaper person, our real selves are also not fully known. But perfect love casts out fear. As I describe these um, two, I guess I'll call them extremes. We might be somewhere in the middle, but these are, these are two ways of hiding, two ways of dealing with fear. I want to ask, which one are you? Which one are you? Which way do you tend to lean? Because we might think about others immediately when we think about people that hide, but, but which one are you? Which one are you? Each and every one of us are made for relationship and belonging. We want in the deepest parts of us to be fully seen and fully loved together. Because being fully seen is very exposing. But what if you don't know what that, how they're going to respond when they see all of you? We're always guarded when we meet people for the first time. If you're visiting and checking out a church or a CG, what we long for, every one of us, every one of you that I've spoken to that, are, that have come into our church, what we long for is a place where we fit in, right? We long for a place where we are loved as we are. Not who we think we will be, but as we are. Without having to be someone else, without having to pretend to hide a part of us. We want to be without constant fear that if someone discovers this about me or learns about that from my past, without fear that we're not good enough, that we'll be rejected, punished for who we are or what we've done. Fear has to do with punishment. We're afraid that if we put ourselves out there with all our faults, 
our histories, our selfish habits, even when we put ourselves up here to preside or to sing or to read scripture. I know they were nervous. <laughs> um, we fear that people will see us and they'll have something to say about us. And that could be, no thanks, not interested, or too much. We're guarded because we have all experienced that pain in some form or another. When we're passed over for a position, a job, when we're ignored by a love interest. Even something as silly as like when, we're, when you're with your friends and then you say a joke and it, it, it wasn't as funny as you thought it would be. And you're, you leave that social situation wondering, oh, what did they think of me? What did they, what was I, <laughs> I don't know. Are they going to invite me back out? Right? It, it, it hurts, even though we can try to laugh it off. It hurts. And the thing is, these patterns of relating with others and with our fears and with our insecurities, they, they, they show up when we relate with God's love. Because the truth is, we, we might be able to work through the hurt from our families. We might be able to move past the betrayal of a friend. We might even be able to survive the rejection of a community. But would we be able to bear the rejection of God? Would we be able to bear the rejection of God? Even the thought of it, we'd rather not know. Rather be live in ignorance. Ignorance is bliss, right? We fear the worst. If we don't know, then we can pretend. <laughs> What if? Because it is a very bold and courageous and scary thing to come before God as we are. Each of us reach a point in life when we have to come to terms with who we are before God, before a holy God. And we stand before the Lord and we say, God, Here I am with my anger issues. Here I am with my sexuality. God, here I am with my addictions and my traumas. God, here I am with the ways that I see the world. We reach a point where we stop trying to hide. We, we can't hide anymore. We give up. We reach a point where we stop trying to be someone else, where we stop trying to hide, pretending trying to fit some mold. And we come to God and we say, God, this is who I am. This is who I am. And then we brace ourselves. We brace ourselves because our patterns of relating with others, we, we know how others have reacted. We're waiting for the blow. We expect judgment, ridicule, punishment for our shortcomings. What will God say? What will he say about us? So John, in this passage, what is he doing? He's, he's reminding us perfect love has come. Perfect love has come. The ultimate, the, the final word about us, about whether we're acceptable, about whether we're worthy of love, about whether or not we have true dignity, the one, the one whose words, his very opinions, create the matter of, of existence, that person, he says, 
I love you. You are loved. I love you. So we're bracing ourselves, but when we come before perfect love, the blow never comes. The blow never comes. John is reminding us in this first verse that what we discover in Jesus is his perfect and complete love. He doesn't require us to be someone we're not. He does not require us to conform to some moral behavior. He does not require anything of us before he says, I love you. I love you. Perfect love has come. John is reminding us of the gospel that we've heard every week here. The gospel that God has come in the person of Jesus to show how perfect and how complete his love is for us. How perfect and how com- what is it? What is its extent? He loved us enough to go to the cross. He loved us enough to go to the cross. On the cross, Jesus experienced abandonment, rejection, punishment at ultimate levels, at divine levels, so that we could receive the divine level, ultimate level, perfect love of God. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Until we receive this perfect love, we will not, I'm sorry, but we will not have the capacity to love like Jesus loves. So church, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Because of Jesus, God doesn't relate to us as a, he's waiting, he's holding a club. He's not doing anything like that. He doesn't relate to us in punishment. Because of Jesus, his nature towards us is not to condemn. Until we receive the love of God, not just as an idea, a theological maxim, not merely as a fuzzy feeling in our hearts, until it gets to the very core of who we are, of our very being, where our souls are completely at rest in his love, until then, we're always going to be fearful and hiding. Until it gets to the core of who we are, we will not be able to be what he has called us to be. In all of 1 John, a community of love. Until we receive the God full, love of God fully, we will not be a community of love. So, King's Cross, visitors, friends, God loves you. He loves you. I'm not that lovable. God loves you. This is fear and God's love. The the first part of today's message. Perfect love. It casts out fear. God sees us fully. Warts and all. Your stubbornness. Your histories. Your anger. Your shame. And he says... I'm interested. I love you. We love because he first loved us. He first loved us. Now that, it doesn't end there. It leads us to fear in our love. Fear in our love because our our love also matters. Our love also matters. That's what 1 John is about. Um, I'll read this again from verse 20. John writes, If anyone says, I love God... 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our love matters. John writes, if you've been following along, John writes a lot about the role of seeing. Not just in this passage, um, but throughout, a, throughout 1 John, um, even in the Gospel of John, you'll find he talks a lot about what you can see. If we look back a few verses in chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, it's not going to be there. Um, you'll find John saying that people can't see God. No one has seen God. But people can see his perfect love when we love. When we love, when his perfect love manifests in us. John repeatedly, over and over and over, almost like, all right, we heard this last week kind of thing. He says over and over and over, God's love, he connects God's love and the, and the community of love. Because we're called as a community to show the unconditional, the unconditional love of God. Now, I'm going to emphasize community here. Because some of us, when we hear, when we read uh, scripture, we're like, I know I'm trying to grow, but she isn't. <laughs> or we say, yet yeah, someone in my circles <laughs> kind of needs to hear this. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm emphasizing community because whoever we're thinking about, their supposed failure to love is also yours. If we agree with Scripture that God calls us to be members of one another. I'm speaking about our communal identity here. I've done that over and over. John is doing that over and over. Because I know many of us are actively working through how to love more like Jesus individually. We've spoken. I know that many are doing the hard work of unlearning prejudices, behavior patterns, harmful teachings that were passed down to us. It's good work. I'm not saying don't do that. But what I'm asking is, what about our communal prejudices? Our communal harmful behavior patterns? Do we look at that together? Because John, and I'll say also Jesus, they're more concerned about our communal witness than your individual. People will see the perfect love of God not through you being so good, but by the community showing love together. So I want to ask us, who has the church, our communal identity, who has the church failed to love well? Who have we failed to love well? Think about it. This is an interactive yeah, don't call, you don't need to call out. It's not that kind of church. Um, in my time here, um, I know we've looked at this from many angles. Um, there are so many ways, I'm sure, in that, just that pause, so many ways that you can imagine our church growing in love. Uh, I know we've spoken, we've discussed, we've studied about the church and race. 
You know, the last few years have been extra fun. We worked on this together when we did the Embrace series together. And I know a lot of that work is still ongoing. I still hear about it. Um, not the studies themselves, but the, what, what those studies revealed about us. That's good work. I know that in other discussions, in book club, in conversations that we've had at cafes, that many of us have talked about the harmful effects of what's known as purity culture on our view of self and the church. Some of us have experienced that. The pain of love with conditions, about being accepted in the church. If you would allow me to do one last application for us regarding our communal call to love, and I'll try to do this at length. Still two points. I know, I'll share with you, and many of you already know this, that in many of my conversations with you all over the years, one recurring over and over concern, and this has come up both in one-on-ones and in smaller group discussions, is how do we love members of the LGBTQ community? It comes up all the time. We just don't always say it here, but here we are. It comes up and, we, and we, we care about our dear friends, our family members, our coworkers who identify with the queer community. Now, I know for some of you, for me even to bring up this question, it, it already brands me in some way. I'm aware. I'm aware. But I would ask, stick with me for a moment. I'll address that branding a little bit later. How do we love members as a church, how, how does our church love members of the LGBTQ community? I know many of us are working on this individually, but communally, communally, is our community a safe place for everyone? Is our community a safe place for everyone? Because for me, there's always certain conversations at replay. I'll never forget the words of my manager at the last job I had at the engineering team my last office job. Uh, his name's James. And we had gotten to know each other over the years because we worked together for many years. Um, for those who don't know, I'm a programmer. Anyway, um, but that's, we, I was in an engineering job for a number of years. And over the time, we've, we've gotten to know each other. And James is unapologetically gay. You, you won't, you, you just know. He's, and he's very open about it. It's not a secret or anything. Um, and at the time, this is my last job, office job, and I told him, um, I told him I was leaving the company. I, I was leaving the company. And he had asked me why I was quitting, because I didn't say why, I was just saying I'm leaving. And I told, I told him that I was leaving to pursue seminary education and ministry work. And in my naive, naive mind, heart, I said, I'd love for you to visit one day when I'm more settled. And without a pause, without a break in our step, he, 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 he said, no, no, I've learned to stay far away from churches. I can hear his voice still. It stays with me. James was telling me that the church has not been a safe place for him. 
It has, a place, has been a place where he knew he could not be, a place where he knew there were conditions. He had to step on eggshells everywhere he went. And I think I've had these conversations with many of you, of course, in our smaller groups, in cafes, one-on-ones. I've had these conversations with you all because we know the truth of what James is talking about. That the church historically has not loved certain people unconditionally. Not just race, not just sexuality, so many things. Love with conditions. Because we know and we feel it ourselves. The world and we long for the beautiful, perfect love of Christ. Yet, with John, the world has warrant to call us liars. The world has warrant with this passage to call us liars. Why have we not loved? What has unseated love as the mark of Jesus' community. What are we afraid of? Fear in our love. And my question that I think about often is, is it possible for our church to be a safe place for everyone to just be? Um, Fear is there. Um, I humbly suggest a few fears for our consideration. And I'll note that on the other side of each one of these fears, there's an idol. All right, that's, that's how it works. Um, the first is that I'll say we fear change. We fear change. We've made an idol of the status quo. Because I know I've grown up with a particular way of seeing the world, and I'm sure, I'm sure many of us have as well. We were taught that in faith, we were always engaged in a culture war. It's always us and them. We've grown up believing that people who didn't live a certain way or believe certain things, that they're always trying to undermine our faith. So be on guard, I was taught. They have an agenda. They're here to cause trouble. Watch out. This is a faith that is fueled by fear. And fear shapes us profoundly. It gets, as I said in the beginning, it gets to the core of who we are. It's primal. Fear is the basis for why clickbait works or why cable news is so addictive. It gets to this part that we almost can't stop. It gets to our core. Fear-driven faith shapes us to see others not as people worthy of love, but potential enemies who we have to keep an eye on. We eye with suspicion. Us and them. It's simple. But it also radicalizes us away from love. They become labels, categories, rather than people whom Jesus says, I love you. We already assume we know their positions, their values, without being curious about them as complex, dynamic, beautiful image bearers of God. And I need to remind us that I'm talking about us communally. I know many of us individually are already working that way. But for our church, we might even tell ourselves that we're being faithful if we hold the line. Because it's a culture war. I'm a good soldier. But perfect love, it calls us to confront our fears. To renewed 
to imagine a world that's a little different than what we were taught. It calls us to a humble repentance of old, for the new has come. Perfect love calls us to reimagine what is good. I'm not, I'll get to the, sorry. It's scary to rework this. We don't know everything. How can we do this? It's scary to rework this. But what does Jesus tell us? We don't do this alone. The Spirit is with us, and I believe in this. I don't know how far this will go with us, but I believe the Spirit is nudging us lovingly. He's nudging us. So we fear change. We've made an idol of the status quo. Two, we fear, there's only three, just, um, we fear different perspectives, or we've made an idol of our own values. And that idol of our own values, it feels threatened. Let me, let me give an illustration. This one's a little harder to put into a, a phrase. Um, sometimes when we encounter people who have different values from our own, beliefs than our own, we have this thing in our head that says, you know, the most loving thing I can do is to correct you. We say things like, I'm loving them by telling them the truth. Now, I'm not saying we need to toss our convictions. We should hold fast to them. Our convictions are important. But we should not confuse or excuse ourselves. Correction is not love. We should not confuse the two. They can overlap. We shouldn't confuse the two. Theology is not God. It is our humble study of God. See, when Jesus came, he did not seek to create a community of theological lawyers. That's not what he came to do. He came to form a community of love. That's how the world's supposed to know that we belong to him. Not for our hermeneutics. You might know that at the time of Jesus, there was a community of theological lawyers. They sent Jesus to the cross. Correction and love can overlap, but they're not the same. I'll even go as far as to say, even if your convictions are right, correction is not love. Even if we are right, when we seek correction first, we hold love hostage to agreement. We hold love hostage to agreement It is a conditional love. To use Christian language, we are, using, we are putting sanctification, the renewal of our hearts and our minds, as a prerequisite, as a requirement for love. But church, we are, we are called to love, not to sanctify. The job of sanctification belongs to another, and it's way above our pay grade. We can't do it. When we elevate ourselves to make it our job to correct others, to sanctify them, to change their hearts and change their minds, it shows that we lack trust in the one who is sanctifying. I've seen him bring out things in his time and in his way that way better than what I was planning to do. Sanctification belongs to him. I'm aware that there are practical concerns. Lots of, lots of uh, what about... 
Or how about, I, I know, uh, this is the world I live in. I think about this all day long. But that's secondary. In faith, we are called to love. Love as he has loved us. How has he loved you? That's how we're called to love. Because fear, again, can make an idol of our values. It can make an idol of our theology. We may feel the need to have all the answers, to make, make everything neat. We are called to love. We are called to love. That's the part of the answer that I know to be true. Now, finally, um, we fear being associated with the wrong crowd. The idol on the other side of this is, uh, it manifests as a kind of tribalism, gatekeeping. Um, as I said earlier, I, I'm aware that for some, there might be red marks on me in your eyes. <laughs> that even considering applications like this will brand me a certain way. I know it's risky, I know the risk for me to share openly on hot button subjects in the church. To be honest, I am sad that they even are hot-button issues. I'm sad that of all the places where unconditional love should be tangibly experienced, I'm sad that the church has not reliably been one of them. I've been in the church for a long time. Long enough that these fears are also in me. They're also in me. In sharing this, I, I'm afraid that you're going to think I don't take Scripture seriously. That you're going to think I'm calling the church to break fellowship with the historical church. You're going to think I approach theology from a human-centered approach. I, I can list so many that they, they are in me as well, that keep me from love. These are my fears as I come before you. These are fears that rise when Scripture tells me to love, when the Spirit is impressing upon me to love unconditionally. These are the fears that come up when I consider our church in our communal witness to love. I don't have all the answers. I'm aware that for our church to love like Jesus, we might end up being associated with certain groups, and we might be afraid of that because we are so used to, that's them. Not us. I'm aware that people might think we're soft on sin. I'm aware that our reputation might be marred if we choose to love people whom the church has historically put question marks on. And I paused so many times as I was writing this. This is, usually I can work out a sermon well before, but I paused so many times working through this last fear so many deep sighs, and I would just stare off into space as I tried to put this last part together. This text is challenging me, my deep, ingrained fears, but I'm here carrying it to you, this message in obedience to the scriptures. I prayed for guidance to shape this. I hope that bears fruit. And as I prayed for the Spirit to help me and as I prayed for the Spirit to give us courage to love despite these fears, I realized, as I was thinking about Christ, that even this nudge to love in these 
scary ways, yes, I know it will be challenging to move into this. This nudge to love is also forming us in Christ's likeness. As I went back to the Gospels, if you're ever stuck, just look at Jesus. Read through the Gospels again. As I went back to the Gospels, I realized this looks a lot like Jesus. This looks a lot like Jesus. Jesus didn't shy away from loving those ignored by the religious gatekeepers. The religious gatekeepers of his day, they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet when we read the accounts of Jesus, there's a spark behind his embodiment of love. Jesus' love was exciting. He loved in the most unexpected places. As I imagine him sitting in these homes with the poor, with the outcasts outside the gate, inside, with the people that had skin falling out, like no one wanted to touch them, when I imagine Jesus sitting with the poor, with the marginalized, in my imagination, I sometimes wonder what his disciples were thinking. What were they feeling? What did they learn when they saw Jesus' love? Were their stomachs queasy, as I am even before you now? Were they nervous when they walked through certain neighborhoods or entered homes that the religious authorities or, or even their own parents would say, don't go there, that's not a good place to be? Were they scared? Did they say, Jesus, no, 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 back on this side of the street? Like, what, what was happening? What was going on in their hearts? I don't doubt that they probably felt that way. But I also wonder, I wonder if their hearts burned within them as they saw love overcome fear. Did their hearts beat a little faster as they began to see and experience the beauty of God's image in people whom they were taught to ignore? I wonder if they caught themselves smiling, beaming, maybe. I shared with you all that in my upbringing, I, I'm, I grew up Southern Baptist, as conservative as you can possibly be in the U.S. And I was taught certain things that I've shared. And one of the things that I've learned as I've become to befriend people around me is that I, I see different glimpses of God's goodness because his image is in everyone. I came alive when I, when I met with friends who were afraid. In James, who I shared about earlier, he's such a good guy. Um, and he doesn't say Jesus, he doesn't pray. But I see the goodness of God in him. Just as I see the goodness of God in all of us. We are sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus says, I want to go to their house. You see, practicing love is where the gospel comes alive in us. We come alive when we live into our purpose, into our calling. In so doing and in loving like Jesus, we bring the love and the life of Jesus to others, especially those that have been ignored. How can we know Christ 
more deeply, if you've been feeling like you're stuck, love like Jesus. Confront your fears and follow him in love. Enter into the mystery, the adventure, the excitement, the, 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 the joy of loving with him. Because Jesus did not shy away from loving sinners. Sinners like us. Betrayers like us. Tax collectors, in a sense, like us. He came to us and he said, I love you. I love you. Perfect love has come. That's why we love. Jesus taught us that our love is directly related to how deeply we know our forgiveness. We love much because we understand we've been forgiven much. And that's what we celebrate. That's the gospel that we say over and over, that we enact and embody in a tangible form at this table. Perfect love casts out fear. At this table, we see that Jesus was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, not because we were so good. Scripture tells us, no, we were the least desirable. But he made us desirable in his love. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And after breaking it, after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink in remembrance of me. Do this also in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. He is making us new. He is calling us to love. He is making us more and more like him. Fearless to be associated with the lepers so that we can show the world his surpassing height, depth, wide, his love that he has for us that overflows. This meal is for those who have put their faith in Jesus, who have been baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Spirit, and who are members of a Bible-believing church. If that's true of you, his body and his blood is here for you. You are welcome to come. If those three things are not quite there, if there is a bit that doesn't align, we ask that you continue to consider the unconditional love of God for you. He looks at you and says, I love you. I love you.